0: Hey everyone, it's Damon Klotz, host of the Culture First podcast. This bonus episode of the podcast you're about to listen to is part of our Working Through It series, a seven-part multimedia experience from the team here at Culture Amp. Though we're nowhere near the end of the crisis, we have reached the end of this unique seven-part journey. So I did want to let you know that we've built a toolkit that summarizes some of the most actionable moments and wisdom from everyone who's joined us on this journey. You can download your copy at culturefirst.com slash working dash through dash it slash toolkit. Did you get that? I'll do it again. Culturefirst.com slash working dash through dash it slash toolkit. All right, let's get started.
1: Culture first?
0: Culture first. Culture first. Culture first.
2: Culture first. Culture
1: first. Culture 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 first. Culture
0: first. I'm Damon Klotz, and this is Culture First. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Culture First podcast. This is it, the final episode in our Working Through It series. In this episode, I'm going to reflect back on the seven paths and take a trip down memory lane as we hear from some of our guests and reflect on the actions that we've all been trying to take in order to work through it. Now, who doesn't love a good Instagram quote? It's about the journey, not the destination. I'm not sure why that's my Instagram voice, but apparently it is. So yes, the quote is cringeworthy, but also true. This is the final episode of the Working Through It series, But let's be honest, this is not the end. Throughout the global pandemic, the height of the Black Lives Matter movement, and widespread economic crisis, our world as we knew it flipped upside down. Now, I'm not sure about you, but as I look around, my world still feels pretty flipped. So, in this episode, I'm going to really open up and talk about how I've been working through it. I'm going to reflect on some of the most actionable moments that have helped me from the previous seven parts. But before I do that, and before I pour my heart out to the world, it's been really great to know that I'm personally not alone in this journey. Now, this might surprise you or it might not. It can be kind of hard to remember that people listen to this podcast when I'm just sitting here in the same apartment that I've been trapped in for months, just talking to myself into a microphone. That's why I really appreciate all of the listeners who have been reaching out to me, connecting on LinkedIn, sharing on Twitter and Instagram all of their learnings and how they've been working through it during this time. So I wanted to share the story from one listener, Beatrice Guevara, as she shared on LinkedIn how the Working Through It series has been helping her. So Beatrice shared on LinkedIn that the Working Through It series has been one of the most valuable resources that she's had to really help her over the past few months, but she called out four particular points that I wanted to highlight here. The series has helped her name and acknowledge the emotions that she's been feeling and experiencing over the past few months. It's helped her develop more compassion towards her colleagues, her fellow leaders, but most importantly, herself. It's also helped her understand the impact of exclusion at the individual and team level. And then finally, it's helped her develop the skills, behaviours and leadership traits to foster really inclusive teams. So this is just one example of a listener and how they've been working through it. And please share all of your stories with me. Like I said, it's helped me feel more connected to our community during this time. And it's just great to see that, you know, this is not a linear journey. We are all going to be reflecting on these different parts as we need them to work through it during this time. So thank you to Beatrice for sharing with me. And if you want to share yours, please feel free to do it using the hashtag culturefirstpodcast on any social media platform, or feel free to reach out to me directly. Do you remember when part one came out? I'm not going to lie, I didn't. I had to go all the way back to the podcast episodes and realize that part one with Dr. Wendy Suzuki came out on the 5th of May. Now I'm not sure about you, but I don't really know what happened in May. I know that January, February, and March felt kind of normal. I was getting ready to travel to conferences, to you know, to keynote events, Uh, I was putting out podcast episodes as part of our regular series, and then before we know it, everything changed. That's why part one was called Start With Today, because we had to acknowledge that we were waking up not really knowing what day it was. Is it a weekday? Is it the weekend? Am I opening up my laptop to help my child go to school virtually that day? Am I trying to join a Zoom happy hour? Am I supposed to be in a meeting? Why am I still wearing sweatpants? It was it was chaotic. And for me, what I realized was I knew that this was going to be taking a toll on our physical and our mental health. So when it came to starting with today, that's why I wanted to speak to Dr. Wendy Suzuki and Dr. Omar Dewood. Because I wanted to look at both the physical and benefits of things like exercise as well as focus on our mental health, knowing that you know, as we look forward to how long we've been in in this crisis, that our mental health was going to take a toll and that we really needed to spend some time focusing on it. So that's why I wanted to help bring in these experts to help me and everyone else listening understand what's happening to our brains right now. Now, the connection point between our brains and our body for me has always been this, um, you know, I guess it's been a bit of a challenge and I always go back to uh, this incredible quote from one of, um, I guess, my earliest virtual mentors. We're not actually friends, although, you know, if you'd like to join the podcast one day, would love to have him on. Sir Ken Robinson. You might remember him from, you know, when TED first came out. He had the most popular TED Talk and, and still has one of the most popular TED Talks of all time. Um, and he focused a lot about education. But there's this one story there that has stayed with me for, you know, probably a, a decade now. And it was a story about people who live so much in their head that they actually forget they're connected to a body. And he referenced a conference, and this conference was a conference of academics. And he said, you know, academics live in their head a lot. And I'll admit, I also live in my head a lot. You know, I get paid to speak into a microphone. I very much live in my head. But he said, if you really want to understand what it looks like for people who live in their head full-time, go to a conference and go to the dance floor on the final night. That's when you'll see all these academics who have no idea that their head is connected to this body that's attempting to dance right now. He says it's beautiful chaos. And while it might not be as, as that dramatic for us that we don't know that we, how to move our body on a dance floor, I think it's important for us to remember that everything we're experiencing in our head is connected to our body and that we do need to really unpack these things. So I want to go back to this moment with Dr. Wendy Suzuki as we were talking about the power of breathing and the impact that it has on the rest of our body.
2: I like to start with um, kind of the most immediate. What if you are just experiencing anxiety right now? Like, what do you do in this moment to try and shift that? And the fastest and most direct thing that every single person listening to this podcast can do is breathe deeply. And I'm gonna tell you there's a neuroscience based reason why that is the case. And that is because breathing deeply stimulates part of the nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system. That is the part of the nervous system that calms the nervous system down. We also call it uh, the rest and digest nervous system. And that is in direct opposition to another nervous system or a part of the nervous system that we call the sympathetic nervous system that everybody knows as the fight or flight nervous system. So what that nervous system does or what that part of the nervous system does is it heightens your heartbeat. It, it makes your breath short and shallow. It Activates your muscles so that you can run away from whatever is is dangerous. So obviously, in this time, we want more of an activation of that rest and digest system. And the part of the nervous system that is under most conscious, conscious um, control is the breath. I can't slow down my heart rate by thinking about it. I can't activate my digestion by thinking about it. But what I can do is I could take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And that just naturally calms the nervous system because it's part of that kind of parasympathetic loop. And so in the middle of, of just whatever's happening, in the middle of a, a anxiety-provoking conversation, anybody can just take one moment and breathe in deeply and breathe it out and there's a reason why deep breathing is one of the most ancient forms of meditation in in our culture it the monks did not know about the parasympathetic nervous system however monks and regular meditators unconsciously know that that is a deeply calming activity that one can do
0: now it's one thing to Listen to the episode and to know that breathing is important, and to know that we need to connect to our body. But it's another thing to practice it, and this is where I've been trying to really spend some time, focusing on making sure this is part of my rituals and something that I know I can control. So whether it was listening to this episode or also looking at, um, there's this great little moment on the Calm website, who was um, also one of our guests on this podcast, Dr. Omar DeWood, who's their chief medical officer. They've got this part of their website called calm.com slash breathe. And all it does is teach you how to do deep breathing. So it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to do it. So let's go back to that moment where Wendy taught us how to do some breathing that really centers us in this moment. So I know uh, there's like box breathing or like four in six out. If we were to do one live right now, uh, what would you recommend for me?
2: Yes, I love the... um four in, six out. So the idea here is to do a deep inhale on a count of four so we could all do this together. So inhaling for four, three, two, one and hold it for a moment. Now exhale slowly on a six count for six, five, four, three, two. And one. And it really if you do this, it focuses you on the act of breathing, what it feels like. Um, That is, again, the most ancient form of uh, meditation. It's a meditation they call on an object. So in this case, the object is your breath.
0: Part two of the working through it series was called "The Only Way Forward Is Through," and at the heart of this part really was questions around what does it mean to be a leader right now? What does it mean to lead a team through a crisis? What are the skills that we need to lead a team through a crisis? You know, not many of us have had to face anything like all of the different things that we've been trying to work through over the past few months. But when I was you know thinking about guests and people that I wanted to uh, have a conversation with you know, Chris Fussell came to mind and, you know, we've done some work with the McChrystal Group over the years and, you know, Stanley McChrystal and Chris Fussell have led teams, you know, through battle in places like Afghanistan and Iraq so they have first-hand experience of, you know, leading teams through crisis and as I reflected back on that uh, conversation, you know, really at the heart of that, what I, what I was trying to wrestle with was this idea of survivor's guilt you know, how do I lead, how do I show up and hold the feelings of being guilty that you know i was able to work from home that i felt safe that you know i wasn't experiencing uh you know racism that i was able to have a roof over my head and you know when you go through things like layoffs when you see friends in you know different countries that you can't reach who are losing their jobs you know survivor's guilt was showing up for me in so many different ways so I reflect back on that conversation a lot about you know how do you push through how do you how do you keep working knowing that I was experiencing survivor skill and I think what I take away from that episode and what I continue to remember that like yes it's important to acknowledge it but you need to also from that position you know use whatever resources you have whatever time you have whatever platform you have to give back to other people so for me I've been coming back to that moment a lot. And then also, you know, my, my other guest in, in part two was uh, Larissa Conte. And, you know, I, I think what we really uh, spoke about in that episode is this idea of, you know, what does it mean to lead through behaviors? You know, if you've listened to me on other podcasts or if you've seen any of the work when I have talk about, you know, building a culture first company, I talk a lot about, you know, you want your values to not be banners on a wall, you want them to be Behaviors, things that you can see, but you know we're asking leaders to show up with, you know, behaviors that maybe not everyone was comfortable with, and you are having to really ask, you know, questions that really were getting at, you know, the um, humanity of what it meant to just try show up right now. And I know a lot of leaders were struggling with the boundaries. You know, what are the boundaries between personal and professional right now? And you know, we joke that like whether it was a pet or a child entering a Zoom call, you know, yes, that's a version of boundary. But, you know, real boundaries come up when you have the courage to be vulnerable and ask questions and really powerful checking questions. You know, one of my favorite checking questions is, you know, what, if anything, is pulling you from presence right now? What's stopping you from being able to show up? So I want to take us back to a moment with Larissa Conte, where we talk about a really powerful checking question and why it's important for leaders to be willing to answer these questions first.
1: Yeah, there are certainly all sorts of depths that we can create in the experience design and a, and a really gentle beginning can just be what's been heavy on your heart recently.
0: Yeah, that's such, such a powerful question.
1: Yeah, and that however much time there is for that question with a group, that in and of itself will create this opening and this breath and I think that it's very important as conveners of that question to ask that of oneself first. Because also, if your organization is has perhaps not historically made space for challenging emotions, it's a great time to start. And we also must respect everyone's cultural patterning on how in our different organizational settings, power has been inhabited to date, particularly organizational structural power. So if you sit in a seat of organizational structural power as a CEO, as an executive, as a VP, it signals safety to not only create the framing of why you want to make space for this and why you care about it and why you want to hear from people but to ask the question and then answer it first because then that's really creating sanctioning for people to open up yeah and also in the framing to say you know as as because we're all experiencing so much right now I want to open this question recognize we all have different types of heaviness that we're sitting with. Some of us may have things that feel small compared to the loss of a loved one or a parent who is ill in a retirement home and we can't go be with them. But the importance of witnessing, really emphasizing that it's witnessing and allowing each person to be where they are.
0: In part three we asked the question, is anything certain? Because the reality is, people, teams and leaders between the months of April and May had just moved their companies potentially completely virtual. They were also trying to find ways to support frontline employees who were working under tremendous stress. At the same time, they were being asked to pivot business plans and rewrite strategies so they can avoid furloughs and layoffs. It was also around this time that I think a lot of the new behaviors and norms that we were trying to create were starting to get a bit tiresome. The idea of joining virtual happy hours when in reality it just meant another hour on a laptop and honestly a struggle to find things to be happy about. It was during this time on the 25th of May 2020 that George Floyd, a 46 year old black American man was killed in Minneapolis, Minnesota during an arrest for allegedly using a counterfeit bill. Months earlier in March, Brianna Taylor, a twenty six year old African American emergency medical technician, was fatally shot by Louisville Metro Police Department officers. Now these events that they led to Black Lives Matter protests not only here in the United States where I am recording this podcast, but around the world. And these events are tragic but they don't just affect the families or the local communities involved. They impact my colleagues and your colleagues of color who are trying to work through not just the uncertainty that the pandemic and economic recession was causing, but also the uncertainty and trauma associated with these events. Now I like for me personally, I chose to march in Black Lives Matter protests. I chose to educate myself. I tried to hold space for my black colleagues. And I wanted to make sure that I address these topics on this podcast. So in part three, I focused on how do we support employees? How do we support HR and how do we support our colleagues as we go through layoffs, deal with political trauma, as well as social justice movements. Now I've spent half of my career working in Australia and Europe, and the other half working in the United States. Now, I'll be honest, in Australia, we don't really talk about topics like politics and race often in the workplace. But when I moved to the United States, I moved here to help open up the first Coltramp office outside of Australia. And that all changed. If you listened to my episode with DeRay McKesson, you might recall me saying that I moved here during the Obama administration, and I had the chance to tour the White House. I can recall all hands meetings where our CEO said that if Coltrane wants to truly call itself a diverse and inclusive company, then we're going to have employees who voted for Donald Trump who work here. And I vividly remember the day when I was trying to be there for my female colleagues who were crying in the office while watching Hillary Clinton's concession speech. Talking about politics and race in the workplace comes with a lot of uncertainty about when to talk what to say, and how to approach the conversation. That's why I found myself going back to the episode with Michelle Kim, where towards the end of the conversation, I asked her, what is she not willing to accept anymore? And her answer has stayed with me. I really believe that this is one of the most powerful moments, not just in this episode, but in the entire series. Angela Davis said that, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. So Michelle, what can you not accept anymore from managers and leaders?
3: The dilution of the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, the making of social justice work palatable to white people, to people in positions of power. And I think that's where we've you know, gone to a place where we are, as a collective, feeling so much fragility because now we're having to use words that we were too political or too aggressive in these spaces. And I implore all of us to think about, you know, what would it feel like for us to use words um, that are just pure in its definition, what we're experiencing. For example, white supremacy, for example, anti-black racism. What does it feel like for us to hear these words on a corporate podcast, right? And uh, what it would feel like and what would it look like if we can just say those things that need to be said without filtering, without diluting, without whitewashing, so that we can actually address the problem at its core.
0: During this time, companies and leaders were also putting out company statements and changing their logos to reflect that they believe black lives matter, but statements are not enough companies had to back it up with plans of action and leaders were being asked to create containers and have conversations with their teams about topics like race, being an anti-racist and creating a culture of belonging. Now it's critical that leaders were having these conversations because the statements are not enough. So I wanna go back to this episode with Michelle Kim as we discussed how these conversations actually impact whether an employee feels like they belong.
3: You don't feel inclusion and equity at the company level if you're working there. You really feel that at the team level, right? If you don't feel the daily interaction that you have with your coworkers or your manager is one of respect and equity and fairness, you're not going to think anything of it from the the company-wide statement perspective.
0: In part four, we focused on emotional intelligence and how it helps us deal with the turmoil and uncertainty that we've been facing. Now, I'll admit, I wasn't your typical Australian teenager growing up. I remember reading through strategy and business magazines that my dad left around and reading Daniel Goldman's book Emotional Intelligence at night instead of prepping for my maths exam the next day. It's really no wonder why I am where I am today if you think about it. Now, we are all emotional beings, and this year has only heightened that, which is why I found myself going back to the moment when my episode with Molly West Duffy, as we discussed what's a professional emotion and what's not. Daniel Goleman may have wrote the seminal book on emotional intelligence, but Molly West Duffy co-wrote the book about what it really means when our emotions show up at work. If I was to use CultRAMP's natural language processing and text analytics capability on all of the transcripts from the Working Through It series, I have a feeling this word would be coming up a lot. Grief. Grief has been mentioned in several episodes now, not only in the Working Through It series, but also in our first 10 episodes in the original series of the Culture First podcast. So I knew I wanted to do a deep dive into this topic when I was interviewing Dr. Kelsey Crow. So let's go back to that episode where we talk about grief and what's the difference between grief with a big G and grief with a small G.
1: The notion of how we can be there for others in their times of grief with a capital G like loss, illness, divorce, are amplified versions of the kinds of micro forms of grief that we experience throughout the day. And again, that can happen a lot in the workplace. Uh, Somebody's tone in an email can really set us off kilter for even a half day. Um, So I think that's how it spills over.
0: It's like those micro grief moments that we feel or grief with a small g chip away at the mask or the persona that we have when we show up in the workplace. And that
1: is so true.
0: They reveal that they like each little one makes your mask a little bit more see through.
1: Mm, and then that's yeah.
0: when your sort of like your tension internally rises because you feel like you might be seen for someone who you're not trying to show up as. So as we move on to part five, we looked at the topic of how to connect in a disconnected world. Now, this one, this one really hit home for me in many different ways. One, because I truly believe that it's really powerful to create strong connections, you know, both inside of companies as well as in your personal life. And secondly, because it's been really hard this year. Here I am, an Australian, living in California, on the other side of the world. I'm away from my colleagues who I was typically seeing every day. I'm away from my family, and we're all missing a lot of the rituals and routines that brings us a lot of joy in our life. Finding connection and community, as well as finding time for it, can be extremely hard. But we are also gathering all the time, whether it's intentionally or not intentionally. We gather in the form of team meetings, accompany all hands, or the simple act of picking up a phone and asking someone, are you okay? I truly believe that we are one conversation away from a better experience when it comes to these connections, whether this be in your professional or personal life. These conversations, they have starting points and they have ending points. Maya Angelou famously said, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. So when it comes to connecting in a disconnected world, and when it comes to creating containers and having powerful conversations, I ask you this, what are you prioritizing? Content or connection? In my podcast episode of Janie Sauer-Klein, We spent 75 truly glorious minutes connecting on the art of connecting. And my favorite moment was when we talked about the power of beginnings and endings.
4: I think when you think about most things, for most people, what stands out is the beginning and the end. You remember how you fell in love with someone and you remember how the relationship ended. <laughs> the middle kind of becomes a blur. Mm-hmm. But the beginnings and the endings say a lot, right? Or how you get hired by a company and what the onboarding process is or isn't. And how you get fired or let go or how you quit or whatever that closure process is or isn't. Um, also makes a big down, so to speak. Um, so I think those are really important touch points, beginnings and endings. So oftentimes, I think we have in the beginning of something, there's this whole list of things we want to get out of the way, Mm. right? Just like, oh, I got to get that stuff out of the way. And then we'll get to the real thing, the content, or what's really important. And that's just a huge missed opportunity. Like when you notice yourself thinking, oh, well, I'll spend the first five or 10 minutes just checking the boxes of getting things out of the way. And that might be logistics like where the bathrooms are or the agenda or thinking your sponsors or whatever your context is resist resist the urge to get things out of the way in the first 5 to 10 minutes because that is the most precious opportunity you have to create a culture. Mm. You do not want your culture to be one of getting things out of the way.
0: <laughs> now I just want to make a quick reflection on that last line. It's really hard to pick one moment from an episode you know which is 75 minutes, but it's one of my favorite episodes because Jenny's taught me so much, not just about, you know, how to create a powerful meeting for connection, but also how to create experiences and onboarding programs and just how I show up in life. So it was hard to find one moment to say like, this is the thing that has helped me the most work through it. But that last line, I think that was it. You do not want your culture to be one of getting things out of the way. Ben Horowitz recently put out a book on culture where he spoke about, you know, what you do is like who you are. And I truly believe it's these moments where we look at how we spend time in meetings, what we end up prioritizing that like, this ends up becoming our culture if we're not intentional. So that last, that last moment really just stuck with me. You know, if your meetings are high stress, Trying to run through all these things, and you're spending all the time at the start with no connection, and it's just racing through content, you know, that permeates the rest of your culture. So, for me, that is at the heart of what it means to truly build for connection and not just build for content. In part six, we started to look at the idea of how do we manage performance during a crisis. As I reflected earlier on in this episode, leaders have been asked to show up for their teams in so many different ways. And one of the most important decisions and transitions that leaders and teams have had to make is when do they shift gears and go from a mode of surviving to thriving? Part of that change needs to include a conversation about what does it mean to perform at work right now? What does success look like? And how much do we need to change our strategy and the goals that we set at the start of the year or at the start of the quarter? Because some of that might not make sense anymore based on the environment that we found ourselves in. These are all important questions, and that's why in part six, I spent time talking with Culture Amp's own VP of Product, Srinivas Krishnamurti, to talk about what's the future of performance, and how have leaders been adapting their strategies to make them a fairer and more equitable process. As a keynote speaker and host of a podcast, it's a good thing that I'm a big fan of storytelling. So I want to take you back And I want you to think about your time at school, whether it was primary school or high school, whatever grade. There may have been a time when there was an activity that required someone to be a leader or a captain, and they needed to actually choose people to be on a team. Now, maybe this was a debating team, maybe this was just a group of people to go somewhere together, or potentially it was during school sport. Now... I may or may not be speaking from personal experience, but it doesn't feel good when you hear the leader or the captain pick name after name after name, until finally, at the end, you hear your name. That feeling is exclusion, and let's be honest, it sucks. In no way when I was chosen last at school did I feel motivated, or did I believe that I had the skills to perform at a high level? This feeling of exclusion, unfortunately, didn't stop in the schoolyards. It happens in offices, on video calls, and in meetings every single day of the week. So I want to go back to my podcast episode with Raj Kamari when they shared what it felt like to be excluded from their dream job. So when I've seen you give keynotes or presentations, you speak a lot about when you were navigating your career, you ended up at what many people would call a dream workplace, you know, a tech giant where you had an amazing boss, someone who was there for you, great perks, great salary. Um, but, you know, to finish the story quickly, you ended up leaving and you, you left because you didn't feel like you belonged and that you felt like you excluded. And, um, you know, I've heard you share that story, but I wanted to maybe go back to one of the first moments where you actually felt excluded. Like what was the situation like? What was it? Was it in a Was it in a meeting? Was it an email? And just like, how did that actually feel that first time?
2: Oh, what a great question! I felt confused. I felt wronged. I felt like I was crazy. I think we hear that a lot lately. Um, I felt like I I wasn't in the same reality as other person, and um, the constant dismissal of my ideas and not being taken seriously even though i was at a very high level and getting paid quite handsomely um, and in charge of some very significant um uh, initiatives and it it just it just didn't make sense given my responsibility and my role and the ways in which i was dismissed it just i kept getting error messages
0: yeah, it's kind of like you're like, am I saying this? Like, am am I speaking a different language right now? Or I'm like, I, I, are my glasses foggy? Like, is something like what's not happening here? And then like the first time you feel that, like you said, you start questioning yourself. You're like, I've done something wrong. That's exactly but right. It, it's usually not that case. It's it's the system. It's the culture, and that's why. You know, when I think about the containers and the conversations, and you know, the the values and all of the like infrastructure that we have inside of companies, that, that's why I spend so much time talking about this stuff because these are the things that makes us then sit there and say, as an individual, like, what did I do wrong? It's like, no, like what what are you doing in a system, and is the system actually setting you up for success? My big takeaway or aha moment from this part of the conversation with Raj Kamari, and the action that I ended up taking is. Thinking about what can I do every single day to make someone, maybe just one person that I work with, feel more included and more valued. Whether it's providing them with some gratitude, giving them a piece of feedback or praise, or potentially even a small gesture or gift. We all have the ability to do something for someone that makes them feel more included. And you just have no idea sometimes how much that little thing can actually impact not just their day, potentially even their week, month, or sometimes even someone's year. So I'd love to know from you, how have you been helping your team members feel more included? Please share the stories with me because I would love to hear what you're doing. In our final part, part seven, we discussed how to turn these obstacles and uncertainties that we've been facing into a chance to do things different. Because if there is to be some good to come from so much of the pain that we've been experiencing, I hope it's the chance to unlearn and let go of all of the practices and behaviors that just don't serve us anymore. So when it came to debating what's a fad and what's here to stay when it comes to the future of employee experience, I sat down with Lars Schmidt, the host of the Redefining HR podcast, to talk about what will the future look like? We debated many trends, but there's one in particular that I wanted to highlight.
1: I think mental health will you know, will probably become what I would consider to be kind of table stakes um, employee benefits uh, as we move forward, because this is, uh, this is a traumatic time for a lot of employees. Uh, and so I think that that will be massive.
0: Like Lars said, this has been a really traumatic time for so many people. There's a reason that I've been speaking about things like grief and compassion fatigue on this podcast for quite a while now, because I believe these are really important things that we should be talking about when it comes to our humanity at work. And the reason that I chose this particular moment to highlight out of all the trends that Lars and I discussed is because I really hope this happens. Mental health resources, and I'm not just talking about an employee assistance program, but real access to things like therapy and support for your employees needs to become an essential part of the employee benefits program. For far too long, organisations have been spending money on things that are trying to keep us at work longer, things like catered meals, or they've been asking us to take business trips, which led to time away from our family and potentially increasing strained personal relationships. They've been sponsoring happy hours, Christmas parties, and exec offsites. All of these things to keep us working harder, working longer, and try to get us more engaged. But if anyone knows, you know, it's CultureAmp, and our research shows that these things don't lead to an engaged or inclusive workforce. And my hope is that, due to the offices being shut around the world, a lot of these perks and benefits that, you know, they're just not being spent on right now. So I, do, I really do hope that, you know, the money, the time, and the strategy that was, you know, in the past being spent on these things gets redeployed into things like mental health and coaching for our employees. We've all been working through a lot this year and on the other side of this is still going to be a lot of grief and trauma that we need to unpack. I have no shame in telling people that I'm a co-founder of a mental health charity in Australia. I have no shame in telling people that I've lost friends to suicide. I have no shame in telling people that my father has severe depression and I have absolutely no shame in telling people that I see a therapist. The more that we can normalise these experiences and these stories, the more people, I hope, will have the courage to reach out and ask for help. Well, there we have it. I've now wrapped up the wrap-up episode of the Working Through It series. I want to thank every single one of you who's joined me throughout this seven-part series. I truly mean it when I say it's been an honor and a privilege to have been your host and guide as we've all tried to work through it during this time. I want to thank every single one of the 13 guests who join me for sharing their stories, for sharing their vulnerabilities, and sharing their advice. I want to remind all all of you that you can head to culturefirst.com slash working-through-it slash toolkit if you head there, you can download this amazing set of resources that we've been creating. There's tip sheets, checking questions, summaries from the parts, as well as book recommendations from some of my colleagues here at Culture Amp that have been helping us work through it during this time. Now, if this series has helped you in any way, it would mean the world to me if you shared an episode on social media, left a review, subscribed, and maybe sent it to a leader, someone specifically who's helped you work through it, as a little moment of thanks and gratitude. So as I wrap up this episode, I do want to let you know that I'm going to be back soon with a special announcement about what's next in store for the Culture First podcast. But until then, I hope you have an amazing day wherever you're listening. And thanks again for tuning into the Culture First podcast.